If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you, my friends? Thanks for tuning in. I've got Dr. Mark McLaughlin on the show today, speaking with me about his book, Cognitive Dominance, A Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear. He'll be up in just a moment. Uh, we're wrapping up our sixth season of the podcast with this episode. And with 2020 drawing to a close, I'd like to take a moment of gratitude. With all the turbulence this year, I'm feeling surprisingly optimistic that 2021 will be an amazing year. And I'm, I'm grateful for my health, I'm grateful for my family, especially my wife and kids for allowing me to practice drums a couple of nights a week as part of my way of staying sane. I'm grateful for all my friendships, all those professional relationships, including those of you who have been in conversation with me here on the podcast for sharing your wisdom and experience. I'm grateful to have such a community around me. I'm grateful to have all of you listening, many of whom are clients, friends, family, and colleagues, and for supporting this venture in all the ways that you do. You know who you are. Uh, you really can't ask for a, a greater gift than this. This is episode 85 of the podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you to the show. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health. Having worked in integrative health for nearly 25 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our lives come to have an effect on our overall state of being. It's my hope that through the content and conversations you get here, you'll be more engaged and empowered personally and in your communities. And if you're a newer listener or in a health field and would like to get more connected with this community and would like to see it grow, you can support Highway to Health for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health, or you can click the link in the show notes on the app that you're listening to right now. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Mark McLaughlin. What he's exploring here is why unexpected events cause such problems for us. I've struggled with anxiety in one way or another in my life. But it's hard to fathom the challenges of being a neurosurgeon, the pressures that must come with such delicate work, and of having someone else's life in your hands, especially if that someone is a child. He shares a number of these special cases that forever changed him, and he believes for the better. Ultimately, though, the aim of this book is developing a system for enhancing situational awareness for rapid and accurate decision-making under stressful conditions by breaking down fear into smaller parts. It's such a thought-provoking read, and we cover a lot of it here in this one. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark McLaughlin. Well, Mark, it's nice to finally meet uh, this way. I feel like I've gotten to know you pretty well through the, through the book. My pleasure. It's nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much uh, background you knew about me, but I, I've been working, I, I was excited to talk to you because I've been working kind of in the field of autonomic response for about 25 years. So I'm a craniosacral therapist, 
but I got into it kind of through the sports medicine route. I was a trainer, did other kinds of body work, but these days I've also got it. I work with newborns uh, in particular. Really? Um, That's interesting. So now I work pretty much with all ages (laughs) and that, that has kind of, you know, clued me into a lot of things in terms of autonomics and, I tend to work with a lot of people who have challenges managing fear and anxiety. So it was like a perfect thing for me to kind of get into a a conversation with you about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking too, because, you know, a good friend of mine very early on in my career, uh, a physical therapist up in Western Massachusetts, a guy named Tom Bianco, taught taught me about, um, you know, craniosacral therapy. And he was a mainstay for his treatments. And, um, so I read up about the Uplinger, Uplinger, is that how it's? Upledger, yeah, John Upledger. Upledger, Upledger Institute. And, um, very interested in the somato-emotional release. So I'm familiar with it. Tom took care of a lot of my patients post-op. Oh, is that right? And yeah, and he also took, you know, had a lot of patients that didn't need surgery because he was taking good care of them. And so we were able to treat them with conservative treatments. Yeah, that's that's been the interesting thing for me too. I I've, I do some work in coordination with um, with dentistry, oddly enough, yes. uh, with, a, with a prosthodontist because of, you know, cranial nerve issues sometimes that, that come up and sometimes it's after, you know, implants or even, you know, they think there may be a bite misalignment or something going on that's triggering this response. They get everything balanced and the nerve stuff is still there or it's intermittent. And so then they bring me in and say, let's see what happens. <laughs> so right. it's right. been it's been great. I, I love doing that kind of work. And, and it really, most of the time, if my work is going to be helpful, it's it, it's usually known within a session or two, which is good too. So I remember Tom's slogan was something like, it's, pr- it's probably... Uh, it's probably national, but a dime's worth of pressure is worth a pound of cure or something like that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So well, one of the things I also, I really like, you know, with the, with your title um, of this book, Cognitive Dominance, A Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear, is that I appreciate that you didn't try to say that you we're going to conquer it or eliminate it because there's we really have uh, there's there's something there that's that's of value and to just completely d- destroy it isn't really what we're trying to do here exactly correct it's a critical ingredient for performance we just need to have the right dash of it just like any right. recipe you know yeah. a little salt makes it too much salt ruins it yeah exactly so so the, the the book goes into pretty uh, quite a bit of detail about what what maybe one of the first big triggers was but did you have trouble i know you were you were a, a division 1 um wrestler as well did you have any trouble with this stuff you know before you got into surgery and the the amount of pressure that you must you know face day to day with that in the early stages compared to what you might have you know seen as a wrestler absolutely i mean i think it's i think just fear follows all of us through our lives and sometimes it gets a stronger grip on us than others uh, but it's it's with all of us we have to wrestle with it every day of our lives i loved the sport of wrestling and i love coaching wrestling because it's sort of like a fear library, uh, right. you know, a laboratory actually, yeah. where you can actually um, kind of experiment with different techniques because some kids respond to, you know, the psych up talk yeah. and some kids respond to the 
thinking of all the other things that could go wrong and, and mitigating those. So the very yeah. cerebral, one of my sons was a very cerebral wrestler. The other was kind of a psych up. Yeah. And so when I helped with the kids in the, in the program, it was very interesting to, to kind of work with them. So it's a fear laboratory and it's, it's certainly a place where you can get a healthy challenge, yeah. but it doesn't have to be a wrestling mat. It could be a tennis court or it could be a, um, a spelling bee, or it could be, you know, an essay contest, whatever it is. Yeah. I think we all uh, have a fear of performance, of anxiety, and have a, a fear of failure. Um, so, so meeting those those challenges is really important. Yeah. So, so take take us back a little bit through you know this this initial thing. I mean, one of the things that I find with a lot of people um, having conversations on the podcast is that we tend to kind of really go deep into the things to solve our own problems. I find a lot of health professionals ended up in a, in a space because of something like this. Was that, right. part, was that part of writing the book? And then, you know, uh, maybe if, if you could kind of just give people who are listening a, a quick, you know, synopsis of, of uh, what, what really set things, I think, into motion with you with, with this patient, Anthony. Sure. Well, I think the, one of the impetuses to write the book was that, um, I I was reflecting back on my career after 20 years of practicing. So to train, uh, it takes you eight years, seven or eight years to train to be a neurosurgeon. Yeah. And then I was I had finished 20 years of practice. And so what I was looking when I was looking back on my career, what I was thinking about was, gosh, you know, there's a lot of stressful decisions that I've had to make along the way. Yeah. Some of which I have kept me up at night or have kept me up for many nights. And, um, and what have I learned from it? You know, what, what can I come together with a unifying theory, a theory on how I deal with fear, how I've learned to deal with fear? Yeah. Um, and is it transferable to other life situations? Yeah. And I found that it was for me. Um, and, uh, and I, and I, and I think that it is for everyone because, you know, Carl Jung once said, you know, a, a personal problem is relevant to all of society because if you can figure out a solution and articulate that solution to the public, there's going to be many other people that benefit from that yeah, solution. Yeah, I like that. So I, I center the book around, um, one experience I had with a young boy who I took care of early on in my career. Um, and it's really an event where, you know, I had all the training and the skills, uh, to take care of him. And I, I was attached to him. I had become emotionally, you know, attached to him yeah. and, um, I performed his surgery and his surgery went beautifully. Um, but over the course of time during his recovery, he began to suffer complication after complication after complication. And what I experienced at that moment was something I never expected to experience in my career. And that was, gosh, there are days that I don't want to be a neurosurgeon. There are yeah. days that I want to crawl under a rock and I feel responsible for this poor boy and his suffering yeah. um, because it doesn't matter um, how the outcome happens, it, you feel responsible sometimes when actions or, or, or events go, don't go the way you want them to. And that's yeah. not just me taking care of Anthony. It's everybody has these experiences in our life where yeah. something doesn't go right and we feel responsible for that. And it's one perspective and it's a story that we can tell ourselves. And really that's what I was doing as I was telling myself this story that 
now, maybe you could have done better for him. Maybe you could have uh, been more careful or, or did a more uh, precise surgery or picked up his warning signs for complications sooner or something to have mitigated his bad outcome when in the end, you know, I was just holding myself to an impossible standard. Yeah. And I think all of us do that in many ways in experiences. So it was an unexpected event in my life where I felt I thought I was going to be, wait, I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm helping people, I'm saving lives. And I thought, wait a minute, I didn't expect to feel this. Yeah. And this feels terrible. Did I train my last eight years of my life to, to feel like this? Yeah. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't function with that feeling. So I buried it yeah. and I avoided it. And I had all these poor coping strategies yeah. to, to, to get away from it until I wrote the book. And then when I wrote the book, I realized I had to, I had to address it and I had to really dig deep into it. And that's when I went back and I found out that this little boy who I thought had passed away from all of his complications after I had moved to a new town, I found out that he had actually done quite well hmm. and he was still with his family yeah. and I had done my job and I did, I did succeed in keeping him on earth and his mom and dad, they, they saw me as their hero and they were very happy that, that I had done everything I could for their son. And I didn't realize that until 16 years later when I went to go visit them and talk with them. And so I realized, wow, I was telling myself this story that was not true. And um, so I, I, I realized that. And, and I think that that's what the book's about. The book is about what do you do when something unexpected comes into your life? How do you deal with that event? Yeah in a positive way. Yeah. And and I think what, you know, what you've written, you know, certainly I, I, I talked to a lot of people in different, you know, health professions. And I, I find, especially in allopathic care, there's not enough, there, at least in the past, there hasn't been quite enough work on those tools that you're, that you're presenting here. You know, how do you, those coping mechanisms, how do you deal with that, you know, with the, with the unexpected? Because it's going to happen. And, you know, we get sort of pumped up, I think, uh, our egos get sort of pumped up uh, both culturally and through the whole process because we need the the you know pumping up sometimes you know right but then right. but but then something like this is inevitable it's going to be there's going to be a lesson in there somewhere and then how do you you know how do you recover from from that and also you know going forward then what do you what do you do considering you just went through something that was sort of traumatic for yourself too Right. So what I try to do, and you know, everybody, we have to face our problems. We have to unpack them and, and figure out you know, what's on the table. What are the objective and subjective parts of this problem? Yeah. But what I tried to do in the book was to kind of map out um, a system that will help you think it through. And so that's the, the goal of the book is to pass on this, this, this compass that I use now when I, when I have that feeling of, hmm, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. Yeah. So that that comes out through a series of rules that I talk about in, in neurosurgery that are universal rules, like never cut what you can't see, mm -hmm. or never worry about a patient alone, um, or always leave a drain. These are these are rules that we learn in neurosurgery, but they're universal rules. You know, always leave a drain is like always have a safety valve yeah. whenever you're dealing with a stressful situation or you you have a have to have a difficult conversation with somebody. Always have a safety valve. Think about a way to, you know, if it's not going the way you want it to, think about, 
you know, how can you say, hey, listen, you know what? I'd like to revisit this tomorrow and maybe we can do a do-over conversation because yeah, I, I yeah. just don't feel like I'm expressing myself well. Whatever it is, you know, or worry, you know, never worry about a patient alone. That was something that was drilled into my head really early. And what it really means is we should never be thinking about a problem that's keeping us up at night alone. Mm, Talk to people, get yeah. different perspectives. You're going to have two or three heads are better than one when you're trying to solve a problem. You may run into somebody who's already experienced this or have an idea that you haven't considered. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that I talk about in the book and um, uh, to, to sort of create a, a new way of thinking, um, a new neural pathway in your brain for fro- solving problems. Yeah. So so can we can we get into that a little bit? I, you, you've kind of created some models and I think, um, you know, they're, they're easier to see visually, but well, maybe we can, we can tackle a couple of the, of the simple ones that I think you've done, um, sure. with one of them being, um, this, this brain 1.0 and, and brain 2.0. Sure. Right. So I had this dream where I was running in a race and it was this bizarre dream where I was I was a horse, but I was kind of like a jockey too. I was this being that was trying to perform in a race. And as I was running in this race, there was this kind of Jack Nicholson, Colonel Jessup from A Few Good Men yeah, I remember. Um, <laughs> in, my, in my head, like telling me what to do, and but also jolting me with fear at the same time. And I was losing my performance because I was starting to get afraid of what these jolts meant. And I couldn't really figure the whole thing out. I knew it was, it was, it had something to do with my son getting his dream choice to go into the Marines. But, uh, um, when I woke up and around that time I had read, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, thinking fast and slow. And I was thinking about, you know, the brain systems one and two, which he talked about where system one was a fast thinking, quick mm. decision system. And brain 2.0 was the more cerebral side of things where we would make more educated decisions and guesses. And, and I thought this really fits kind of with fear too. Like we have this baseline um, sentry part of our brain called the amygdala, which is, you know, constantly looking for threats in our environment, mortal threats, you know, uh, physical threats and also uh, intellectual threats. And then we have this higher level executive function cortex, which is more of our, you know, uh, software that helps us think problems through. And there's this constant feedback between the two. Is this a threat? Is this a danger? How much of a danger is it? Oh, no, it's not a danger. You know, it's, it's a criticism and I need to think logically and intellectually about how this person's criticizing my thoughts instead of it being a saber toothed tiger coming to chase us. Right. So there's always a balance between this brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. I talk about brain 1.0 being sort of your deployment software. If you're uh, in the military, that's constantly looking around, you know, to see what's, what's out there and wh- wh- who's around you, who's behind you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then your cerebral cortex, your brain 2.0 is your executive software. Yeah. So when we understand that there's this baseline system that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, um, it, it really works really well when you're in a dangerous situation uh, uh, some nights or some days when you're physically threatened, but it yeah. doesn't serve you well in complex situations of modern society. So that was where I sort of came up with the concept of brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. 
And and the and the brain 1.0 just I mean this may, maybe just for my own understanding of this, but hopefully this will help other people too. Is that its its responsibility is kind of to to detect unknowns, right? I mean this is this is the part of our system that's sort of pre-programmed. It's our it's our uh, limbic system. Is that right? That's right. It's, the- that's the Colonel Jessup that's always on the wall, yeah. deciding what's going to come in and what's not going to come in. And and it's it's alerting system 2.0 as to you know what it needs to pay attention to and process, right? That's kind of the processing part of the system, the higher cognitive function, right? Correct, and it doesn't really have a language. It only has a, it only has like an anxiety jolt, and that right. can be super high, uh, you know, or it can be more low and, and muted depending on what you're experiencing, what the what the threat is. Um, so you you've got to you've got to understand that, recognize it, and kick it up to brain 2.0 to do the problem solving when you feel like you don't know what to do. Yeah, and and I like I think you use the term black swans, right? This this yeah. this sort of, you know, anomaly which you know in in health professions, I'm always looking at patterns, you know, over you know, I've I've done about twenty five thousand sessions at this point, so you know I'm really looking for those kinds of things that that stick out. But I've also you know certain things that I've seen before, and then there's testing that goes on to try to figure out, you know, what's what I know from my past and what this what what this anomaly might be, and then having the conversations with those people who I need to consult with. Exactly, and it's a constant tango between brain one point and brain two point which you know which leads to meaning in our life. Right. Right. So, so, and and then the, the the next part of this that I think is is really important. So, you know, just so we can kind of break this down, because I think really what you're trying to do is to present a way of understanding what it is, you know, with with these pieces. How do we how do we how do we create these categories, or how do we create these different buckets for what what this problem might be? And the the other piece of this that you created is is this quadrants. Um, yes. And, and so, if you could explain that too, because the, and and then how these two pieces kind of work together. Sure, and and that's the map that I talk about. Right. So you can literally map out your fear, um, and what you do basically is you draw an X and a Y axis, very similar to your high school algebra class, yeah. um, and uh, so you, that gives you four quadrants. Um, and imagine the X and the Y axis. So the on the X axis. That's your. Um, that's what we call the objective. Those are material gains. Those are things like getting the job promotion, getting the corner office, and those right. are the things like attaining financial security. Those are the all the tangible things, the material goods. So that, think of the X axis, right? Exactly that which is. Also, think on a one level that that's brain 1.0. In some respects, that's brain 1.0. That's that's seeing objective things. And then on the y-axis, that's brain 2.0. That's also the subjective. That's what is meaningful. Okay. And um, if you could also just add another layer, think of the the y-axis is your left brain is your right brain. I'm sorry. The y-axis is your right brain, okay, and yeah. the x-axis is your is your left brain. Your left brain is logical, sequential, ordered. It it knows you know you need to do x, y, and z to get to where you want to be in your job and you know and in your finances and all those other things. And the and the y-axis that's your right brain. That's just big picture things. What's the meaning of something? Yeah. And so what what I suggest is that when an unexpected event comes into your life, you need to pick it apart and to say, what are the objective components of it? 
and what are the subjective components yeah. of it? What is the matter of this? And what is what matters to me about this? So if let's say you do get that job promotion and you you're excited because you got the corner office and you got a raise, but the person you find out you're working for is a tyrant. And there's no way you could possibly live for that per live and work with that person any, any longer. Yeah. So then, so objectively on the x-axis, you're positive, right? So you're you're off to the right side on the x, but you're a negative on the y. You're a negative on the meaning side of things. It's unhappy for you. So I call that the calm before the storm. That's yeah. when something's got to give because you have dipped down. Whenever you're negative on that Y axis, you're living in cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. So you're living in a, in a state of where your actions and your beliefs don't meet. Right. So that would be a, a good example of a, a positive X, but a negative Y. Okay. As opposed to, let's say, um, you get fired um, and you're out of a job, but that causes you to spend some really deep time thinking about what you really want to do in your life and it forces you to maybe go back and take a course in mineralogy and um, learn how to make jewelry and then that becomes your new life calling that's when something is objectively negative so you're you're to the left on the y-axis but on a meaning standpoint you're positive so that's that's something where you say oh that was a bad experience but it was the best thing that ever happened to me and yeah. that's what I call a birthing a new skill set quadrant. Yeah. So that's the upper left-hand quadrant. And then you've got something where, let's say, objectively it's negative and, and subjectively it's negative. That's like a loved one gets a cancer diagnosis or um, you know, something senseless happens and you, can, you just can't make any meaning of it yeah. and it's negative all around. So that's when you're in the lower left-hand quadrant. That's something I call the always lost quadrant. Yeah. Again, whenever you're in the negative axis on the Y, you're in cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Things don't make sense to you. Yeah. Your actions don't fit um, and the meaning doesn't make sense. And then just to kind of complete the quadrant, so you've got the, the lower left-hand quadrant, all is lost. What's the upper right-hand quadrant? That's when objectively it's positive and subjectively it's positive. That's when you know, you're a neuroscientist and a new staining technique comes out and now you realize your passion for studying the nervous system has now been put steroids on top of because you can see things you could never see before, which is what happened with a famous scientist by the name of Santiago Ramon y Cajal in the early 1900s. And he basically was able to visualize the neurons and the synapse. And yeah. he ended up going on to win the Nobel Prize for coming up with the theory about the synapse. So that was a that's an, a quadrant where everything's positive, subjectively meaning, objectively positive meaning, and subjectively it's positive as well. So that's what I call flow. And that's and and, and that flow comes from basically we it's the experience and the skill set we've developed, and and that other part of our brain is quiet because everything is kind of has come together, right? It's the it's the basketball player who can just hit everything. Everything goes in. Right. Exactly. And that's when you never want to think. That's right. when you're, you, that's the one time when you don't need to employ brain 2.0 to do anything. Exactly. You just go with it. Yep. But every other quadrant, you need to employ brain 2.0 to help you unpack this. Yep. And if you can just know where you are on that quadrant, it's going to help you climb out of it. 
And um, so what I say is, so the first step of climbing out of something is just recognizing where you're at. That's yeah. the first step. Yeah. And then the second step is really to really drill down on that Y axis. What is the meaning? What is my meaning in life? What is my purpose in life? And when you when you're stuck, you need to basically ask yourself, all right, I'm, I'm in a terrible situation. Let's say you're in all is lost and you've done everything right and something wrong has happened, something terrible has happened. What you need to do at that point is you need to create some type of a micro goal, even if it's the tiniest little thing yeah. that moves you or climbs you up the Y axis. So make that action something that's consistent with your character. Yeah. And what you're going to do is you're going to feel yourself climbing the rungs out of this. Okay. My loved one has a terrible terminal illness. I'm going to spend the rest of their life and my life getting closer to them, mm-hmm. putting every single effort I possibly can into bringing, helping this bring us closer together, whatever that is. And that's going to help you climb up and find meaning and get out of that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the hard part, you know, is that we, we come to these, we come to these things with whatever baggage we have too. I mean, this is one of the, one of the pieces you, you mentioned some of yours, but in my daily practice, when I'm working with people, I tend to be treating people a lot who have histories of some kind of trauma. So, you know, what ends right. up happening is they're kind of in those quadrants, you know, two and three a lot of the time, right? They're right. kind of, they're, it always feels like there's a calm before the storm or right. that all is lost, you know? And they, and so, but, but I think the, these kinds of things, so, so be, being able to break this down into those, into those uh, objective parts, right? <laughs> that, isn't that, isn't right. that the first step? Exactly. Yes. Yes. And, and then understanding, and this comes with wisdom and time that the heroic journey is to travel through all of these quadrants to tra- we all travel through them and it's yeah. really a continuous cycle not always in a clockwise fashion but generally in this clockwise fashion we get to this we get to this flow and then you know and then something happens and we're not really on our feet we don't, we're a little off balance we're in that calm before the storm maybe things get worse and then we fail or we screw up or we step in mud you know and then we find a way to birth a new skill set and figure out how to get out of that and then we move back into flow at a higher level of flow yeah and that's what we really want in life. I mean, you, I, I say like, who would want to always live in flow? It, it would be like very Midas like, you know, yeah. King Midas. Uh, it would be like that old twilight zone with, I think Orson Welles, where the <laughs> yeah. guy thinks he's in heaven, but he's actually yeah. in hell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where every, nothing can go wrong for him. And he goes to the casino and he wins everything and he can't lose. So I think it's understanding that journey. And it took me 16 years to see that with Anthony, that, well, I actually went through all four quadrants with Anthony. I went through the flow quadrant when I operated on him and I walked out of that OR that day when I first operated on him. I'm like, this is what I'm here for. Right, right. I love this. Yep. And then when he didn't do well, I was in this calm before the storm. And then when I couldn't leave him, I, he, he, he never left me. I, I had all these bad coping strategies and suppress and suppression of them and forget about it. And I went to the all is lost quadrant and stopped doing pediatric neurosurgery until I started writing a book. And then I started realizing, Hey, no, like this is part of what you do. You need to face these kinds of things, this fear and this grief. And then I realized, Oh my gosh, I, 
I would never, ever trade for a million years the opportunity to take care of Anthony and to go through that experience because I love it now. And I realize that that's my purpose on earth, that I'm not always going to cure a person, but I'm going to do my very best for them. And I'm going to be there for their parents, for his parents. And, you know, he's still here and he's his number one guy for his mom and dad. And he's part of their family. So I, I did my job and I'm very proud of it. And I I remember on that day, neurosurgery got a lot easier for me. Hmm. It got a lot easier. Well, it was interesting. You, You said something in the book too, about how um, going back to this model of brain 1.0 and 2.0, so brain 1.0 is kind of is risk averse, right? Isn't that kind of the way? Right. You're, so you know yes. that that it's 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 risk averse, but without the risk, you don't get the reward. That's kind of like to 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 go full circle through these things to sort of you know put yourself in the calm before the storm and have to have to you know activate a bunch of tools you know from your experience is kind of what gives us the the highs, the joys, and everything. And so if we, you know, if, if we, if, if we, if we don't take that risk, that, that, that's what ends up happening too. That's exactly right. What you're doing is you're constructing a new neural network. So what mm-hmm. we're seeing now with all these functional MRI scans and these, what we're seeing is that, you know, every thought process has a certain series of neuron firing. So if you look at somebody who's thinking about riding a bike or riding a bike, it's the same pattern over and over and over again. And it's burned into our head when we're kids. That's why you can jump on a bike, you know, 20 years after you rode a bike and you can still ride it right, because it's right. it's a neural network that you've you've ingrained in your brain. Cognitive dominance is about setting up a new neural network to help you solve problems. Yeah. And it, it, it is a little hard in the beginning. It's The book can be in certain sections a little bit heady, yeah. um, but that's sort of something you need to break down and kind of lay down a foundation. And the more you practice it, the better you're going to be at it. And it's really, I mean, I, I say cognitive dominance is like training your brain to be ambidextrous, training to leverage your right brain, which is the big picture kind of spiritual uh, metaphysical concept uh, catcher mm-hmm. with the logical sequential, you know, um, you know, thinker executive function of the of the left brain. And that's what it is. It's basically toggling between these two to be more effective. Yeah, and and that's and and we are probably maybe the only species who does that, that kind of thing, right? I mean, this is this is a very sort of specific skill set to be able to toggle between. I think it's 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 part of the challenge. And one of the things that I've somebody asked me about this one time about why are why do they say that musicians are tend to have higher uh, you know intelligence? And I think, and I have a, I was, I was a musician when I was younger and, and I, I think there's something that happens between you have this very sort of engineering sort of structure to, to the way music has to be. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a structure to it, but then, you know, you're, you're responsible for ordering it. So then you're using that right brain side to just sort of put all these different things together, but you're also listening to other people at the same time. It's, you know, it's a very complex thing. It's, it's, but to me, that's that seems also very close to what you must do, you know, in, in surgery. It's funny you mentioned that my, my boss, Dr. Janetta, who I trained under my mentor, yeah, that's right. um, one of his criteria at the university of Pittsburgh, which is one of the top programs in the, in the world, he insisted that, um, that the applicants that he chose had to play an instrument because he believed that they had a, a skill solving, you know, um, 
a set that was unique or improved. He played the banjo. Right. And um yeah, he liked he liked athletes and and musicians. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah. it, but it, but it makes sense. I mean, I think that there's there's an adaptability piece to this um that that I, for me at least I feel like that's why I and I've had issues with anxiety my whole life just on, you know, to some degree, but I think that the more that I sort of push into those discomforts, you know, the, the more confident I get in, in trying new things like that. So it kind of works back into these quadrants again, you know, that anxiety fear piece, it, 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 you can also start to kind of like quiet it down through success, you know, through some experiences that make you feel more comfortable too, I think. Absolutely. And one of the exercises we do in the book is to kind of drill down on every level of anxiety that you can think of. So we try and build a lexicon mm. of, of how to articulate where you're actually at because there's there's a spectrum you know there's a gradient of of anxiety to full-blown fear um uh to transcendence where you have virtually none or it's it's very very low on your list of things that you're thinking about so it's good to have that sort of spectrum that you can kind of point to we have that in the hospital every day you know show me what your pain level is is it a is it a seven or is it a three, you know, or can we bump it down to a three? So I don't think you're ever going to be completely free of it. Um, but you can always kind of figure out a way to knock it down a few levels. Yeah. You, 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 uh, you, I, I wrote down a quote that I really liked from the book and it was tools to silence your inner underminer. And I thought, I mean, that could have easily also been the, uh, the subtitle of the book because I felt like that, th- that's the one thing that we're really trying to gain by doing these, this kind of work, by, by go- kind of going through this stuff and understanding, you know, what, what that self-talk looks like. How do, how do, how do we deal with, with these kinds of challenges when the un- unknown comes up? And then right. how do we proceed from there? Exactly. And that's why, you know, I, I loved that I, I was a philosophy major in college. And so I love like the kind of crossroads of philosophy yeah. and neuroscience and, you know, and, and psychology. I just, it's fascinating to me. That's funny. I was an English major. And, uh, I, and I find very few people who are like, in, like you, who, are, who kind of like started out in a, in a, in a different under, under, undergrad, you know, study and then went into the sciences hard because I think you can put those, those things together too, just like you're saying. Well, I'm a huge believer in consilience, which is, you know, a, a, a wonderful, there's a wonderful book by Edward O. Wilson, who's um, probably 94 years old now. He's a mm. Harvard professor. He was, he's the world's leading authority on ants, probably still to this day. Oh, interesting. He wrote a wonderful book in, I want to say 1999 or 97 called Consilience. And consilience is the belief that there is this common thread between the humanities and sciences. Mm-hmm. And he points to you know, Albert Einstein and how he took astronomy and physics and mathematics and proved yeah. relativity. And um, Da Vinci. And, uh, and, 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 yeah, exactly. Da Vinci, you know, that same, same kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, I lo- that's why I love about, I love the X, Y axis and the quadrants because that's, that's Rene Descartes. Oh, so yeah. where we're taking yeah. science and humanities and marrying them together. Um, and, and it's, it's a wonderful book about finding that thread, that common thread through everything. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, I, I really enjoyed the book. I mean, I, th- I thought it was kind of a, a, a sorting experience just to kind of go through it, you know, to kind of 
go through my own stuff. Did you have the same experience, you know, writing the book? Is there, is there anything that just, that really came off to you in the end that, that, you know, in terms of sorting all that stuff that you really figured out for yourself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am so glad that I, that I did this. I'm so glad I had a wonderful co-author, Sean Coyne. Um, you know, he really helped me stitch these stories together and he brought a perspective that, you know, I just would have never had. And so to, to have that, I was, you know, and I finished it. And even now I just feel this, this sense of, you know, like I've got, I've got a, a, a frame around a body of knowledge yeah. that I, I was trying to wrestle and, and, you know, put together in this one big thing. But now I, I have it ordered and I have it in a way that I can pass it on to my kids and to my former wrestlers, which I love to do is to talk to them about learning and to the public, which is, it's a, it's a thrilling experience. I'm so happy and blessed to be able to, to do that. Yeah, that's it's really so cool. a special feeling. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to to do this with me, and and I really enjoyed the book. Thanks for sending it. And uh, um, you know, I, I hope I hope people you know are, become interested in and in just exploring what they can sort of understand about how they construct their their you know their their mindset when they're working on a challenge like fear. Because I, I think this is, you know, this is sort of the key to, I think, all of our, you know, interrelationships and our, our you know, our passions and the things that we want to push harder into that, that, that sort of inner underminer gets in the way of sometimes if we don't, if we don't do the work. You know, and I think that's a big part of, I mean, when, when, I, when I've done my studies through, through the Appledger Institute, one of the things that they really get into and they push you very hard on is doing your, doing your own personal work, like really making sure that you are getting yourself into the right place, that you have your own kind of practice of what you're doing for yourself to stay in that, in that zone when you're working. And I think a lot of it comes down to doing projects like this. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a pleasure talking with you. I love, you know, sharing, sharing, uh, you know, stories about it. That's great. Well, keep doing great things, Mark. Thank you. And you too. All right. Take care. Dr. Mark McLaughlin, folks. The ability to understand where we are in a moment takes practice. And what Mark has created here is a means of being able to identify what is happening to us so that we can make better decisions quickly and in the face of stressors. One would think that stakes have to be high to feel extremes of stress, but as we discussed here, and as Mark details in his book, the feeling of stress may come from previous experiences that set off triggers in our nervous system, even when stakes aren't high. This is where cognitive dominance is important. To be able to quickly sort and break down the feeling we're experiencing into smaller parts helps us move through these unexpected occurrences without being knocked out of balance by the stressor, improving our ability to make good decisions quickly without becoming frozen by fear. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can get in touch with me anytime by email, jeremy at highway2.health. And if you'd like to see us having this conversation, check out our channel, Highway to Health Podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. See you in 2021, my friends.
If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.